friends, travelers, and psychonauts, head on over to maps.org and sign up for the Maps e-newsletter, which will keep you informed on everything going on in the world of psychedelic science and research. Check it out. podcast. This is Zach Leary. I am your host. MAPS is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. I'm sure you already know that, but just in case you don't, that's what MAPS is. This is episode 30 of the podcast. Very, very exciting. And this episode was recorded live at the Los Angeles Psychedelic Science Symposium, which took place about a week ago on the campus of UCLA. Over the course of two days, many great talks and panels and deep dives into the various pillars of current psychedelic research took place, and the panel that I moderated was called Transcending the Medical Frontiers, Exploring the Future of Psychedelic Drug Research. And on the panel was David J. Brown, Daniel Pinchbeck, James Oruk, and Ben Stewart. And the title and concept for the panel actually came from David J. Brown in an article that he wrote. Uh, so I, I really think you'll, you'll enjoy it. I mean, those four guys on stage together diving into this topic. What could go wrong, right? Fantastic stuff. And as we stay on the beginning of every MAPS podcast uh, and the bumper, go to maps.org to stay up to date on everything going on. In the maps universe additionally follow maps on twitter it's actually one of my favorite twitter feeds uh, the stuff that the fantastically intelligent and insightful maps social media team tweets really brings a lot of awareness and exposure to the greater psychedelic community um both you know on the fields of cognitive liberty as well as scientific research and all of the great work that is going on um, so follow maps on twitter but before we get into the podcast uh, somebody recently just texted me this quote uh, from paramahansa yogananda which actually inspired me to think about uh, one of my favorite terence mckenna books the archaic revival and let me piece it all together for you Nothing may be truly said to be a miracle, except in the profound sense that everything is a miracle. That each of us is encased in an intricately organized body, and is a set upon an earth whirling through space among the stars. Is anything more commonplace or more miraculous? That quote is from Paramahansa Yogananda. And when it was texted to me, it made me think of the now seminal book by Terence McKenna, The Archaic Revival, which is subtitled Speculations on Psychedelic Mushrooms, The Amazon, Virtual Reality, UFOs, Evolution, 
shamanism, the rebirth of the goddess, and the end of history. Wow, there's a lot there, right? Now, looking back on it all these years later, uh, that is a very, very prophetic uh, vision and attempt to explore what our upcoming uh, environment and ecosystem within the human framework would be like. And Terence certainly could see down the road uh, considerably. He writes in the book, at active levels, psilocybin induces visionary ideation of spacecraft, alien creatures, and alien information. There is a general futuristic science fiction quality to the psilocybin experience that seems to originate from the same place as the modern myth of the UFO. Now, whether or not you agree with that, it is a, a very profound implication that Terence is suggesting. And uh, further on in the book, he makes a similar connection to virtual reality. Now, this is in 1991. The point being that all of these manifestations of the human imagination and the tools that allow us to experience the inspiration that is nestled deep within each one of us and unleashes that inspiration into its executable, tangible form, i.e. when you have a mind-bending, life-changing psilocybin experience that uh, perhaps gives you a new perspective on how to live out your dharma. Uh, the actual result of this uh, can be whatever you want it to be. It might take form in the world of technology. It might take form in the world of ecological and sustainable farming. It might take form in the written word it might take form in wanting to take a more active role in the ex ever-expanding world of psychedelic research. Perhaps you're being called to help others heal their past traumas and to break through the limitations of their egos through this very, very important work. However it manifests, however it takes shape, the mystical experience and its representation in this thing we call reality has many faces. Like the Hindus say, there is one God who is infinite, who is undescribable, yet we give him a million names. So as we transcend the medical frontiers of psychedelic drug research, let's see how else we come together to express these visions. So that was that. Transcending the Medical Frontiers, Exploring the Future of drug, Psychedelic Drug Research. Um, the title for this panel came from David J. Brown in a piece that he wrote for Accelerator.com back in 2011. I highly encourage you to uh, read that, and I'll put a link for it in the body of this podcast in the post. Um, so, yeah, at LAPSS, which was a, a wonderful event, the first ever LA-based psychedelic symposium, uh, David J. Brown, Daniel Pinchbeck, Ben Stewart, and James Orock, who are all uh, really, really deep, deeply uh, inspired 
thinkers in the psychedelic community, and uh, they all have something different to offer. And I thought it was a very, uh, very intelligent uh, combination of, uh, of minds to put on stage. And I was extremely fortunate. I am extremely grateful to have been asked to moderate this panel. So yes, it was recorded in a big auditorium. Uh, the sound isn't as good as it could have been, but I think you'll really enjoy it. These guys had some great things to say. And uh, we'll just get right into it. Here you go. And I'm going to start this panel off by quoting that are as thrilled as I am by all the new clinical studies exploring the medical potential of psychedelic drugs. I still long for the day when our best minds and resources can be applied to the study of these extraordinary substances with an eye that looks beyond their medical applications toward their ability to enhance human potential and explore new realities. Very good. Um, so, you know, it's an amazing, amazing thing to kind of take note of where we are in the new wave of psychedelic research. There's no question about that. The new wave of psychedelic research has been a tremendous success in headway in many mainstream therapeutic areas and treating some very, very crucial uh, disorders that affect many, many of us. But looking beyond those disorders, as the title of the panel suggests, what's the future? Of psychedelics now, and uh, I know David and Daniel specifically. You guys might have a, a real opinion on that because definitely over the last ten years, a lot's changed. And in my opinion on where the future of psychedelics is is going is really changed in the last five years. But let's uh, let's, let's start with that. Let's start with you, David, since you yeah, you I, started I, this. Yeah, tremendous change is going on. I mean, I think that. The, that the research going on right now with um, MDMA and post-traumatic stress disorder and uh, psilocybin obsessive compulsive disorder and Ibogaine and, and uh, opiate addiction, they're just so wonderful. We've been waiting for so many years for this, but you know, I've been personally waiting. I mean, there was no psychedelic drug research from 1972 to 1990. We're in the midst of a med medical renaissance right now with psychedelics. And what's going to happen when we can finally cure most of these ailments and move beyond when we have the resources and the manpower to be able to systematically study some of these other areas? And the other areas that I see coming along are advanced forms of learning, um, being able to use psychedelics to learn more effectively, more quickly, to imprint in new ways and to learn new dimensions of things. Uh, Thomas Roberts talks about this uh, quite a bit in his book, uh, The uh, Future of the Psychedelic Mind. science of pleasure developing. I think one of the most unspoken things about psychedelics, besides their therapeutic value, is that they're enormously fun and that they can produce uh, enormous amounts of pleasure. And wouldn't it be wonderful to systematically explore this and to really see uh, how it can be applied in new ways, combining it with music and culinary, um, you know, culinary creativity and massage therapy and tantra and all these different things, but really study it scientifically and see. Um, the study of psychic phenomena, most people don't know, 
is an area that's been scientifically studied for the past uh, 100 years or so. It has gotten uh, enormously um, consistent um, positive results. And um, people have been reporting uh, paranormal psychic experiences, telepathy, telepathy, precognition, things like that with their psychedelic experiences, mostly anecdotal. There's been a few pilot studies done with uh, psilocybin, but it would be so wonderful to really see uh, these areas explored systematically to do all the telepathy tests and precognition tests with people on ayahuasca and LSD and psilocybin and see if their scores can be improved and what we can learn from that. Um, it can be used uh, for creativity, for uh, problem solving. There were studies done in the 60s, Oscar Janiger and James Fadiman uh, did studies to show that it improves not only artistic creativity, but um, improves problem solving abilities among a long, long range of, a uh, whole wide range of professional activities. Um, probably most interesting of all, though, is that um, we could explore the possibility of uh, communication with non-human entities, exploration of parallel universes, and uh, whatever these hyper-dimensional realms that people report on their DMT journeys. Um, and then finally, this could be taken uh, to the area to actually study um, Divine, divine intelligence, God itself. If, if God truly exists, if there is divine intelligence, then ultimately this is going to become a branch of physics, and this will become something that we can study. And we already know that psychedelics uh, consistently produce mystical and spiritual experiences, so this could be an avenue towards being able to study this on a much, much deeper level. Daniel, I'd like to end this up. Well, you didn't leave much. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> We're done, folks. <laughs> No, I agree with all of that. I mean, um, I think that you know we're at a you know kind of a civilizational precipice where we see what's happening with like Trump and, and this kind of mania that seems to be very like constricting in terms of awareness and consciousness. So either like consciousness is this realm that has like much greater dimensions to explore, or we seem like we're going you know we're going to hit a hard stop soon. Luckily, if you've had the psychedelic experiences, you do realize that there is tremendous uh, realm for exploration. That, that it's like a frontier that we haven't even really touched yet. It's like brand new territory, in a sense. I also really love the Tom Roberts book, The Psychedelic Future of the Mind. One of the ideas he has in that book is that um, we could look at the rediscovery of psychedelics in the modern world as a second reformation. Uh, the first reformation was when the Bible was translated into the common languages and people who could only experience like the word of God uh, you know, through the priests were suddenly able to read it for themselves. And then with the second reformation, not only can we read it for ourselves, we can have those experiences. Uh, so this idea that we're entering a second reformation I think is very fascinating. Ultimately, this idea that we can reintegrate, uh, you know, science and mysticism, science and spirituality, and have like a secure paradigm, uh, maybe for the future. Um, you know that that you know, in a way we've got this we've got this sort of like the materialist science camp and the mystical experience, the psychedelic camp, and if we can bring those together, then we actually have kind of like a solid framework, you know, maybe maybe for the future. Um, yeah, all the other all the other aspects of it, I think I think are are crucial. You talked about psychic phenomena. Um, you know, I, Tom Roberts talks about how you know we actually seem to have a tremendous range of what he calls mind-body states that could actually be categorized and understood, and that we actually have different capabilities and capacities in these different mind-body states. So, what an amazing area for uh, future for future research. And as you know, James also knows, there are some groups that are beginning to explore 
in a scientific framework, you know, could you actually figure out the validity of uh, the entities that are encountered in psychedelic states? Is there a way to verify through like double blind or sending people together into these other realities? Could they actually begin to come back in a way that you could say, okay, like, you know, there are these entities that have information that we can sort of verify independently. So that's all super fascinating. Yeah, and there's so many great things worth said between the two of you. I just want to pick that out for extract that for just a second. And what I like to call the reignition of mysticism, which is something that is really, especially in Western culture, has been somewhat absent since the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. And now that we are seeing this kind of collective consciousness, uh, you know, group expansion and return into mystical states. These shared dimensions that both David and Daniel, you guys both uh, talked about, they're commonly experienced at DMT and ayahuasca. So many people report similar visions, similar descriptions from these specific substances. What is that? What's going on there? That's such a fantastic question. Even for any of you guys, James, Ben, anyone. There was this uh, astrophysicist. We did these events in uh, Turingham in England that brought together a lot of psychedelic, uh, you know, explorers, scientists, thinkers, with some scientists from other fields. And there was an astrophysicist there who said, you know, he was willing to entertain the idea that we know from, you know, string theory, or at least it's one hypothesis, that there are these extra dimensions of space-time that are these like infinitesimal dimensions that are kind of you know, interwoven into this one. So, so maybe what you're experiencing through these different psychedelic states is actually these other dimensions that string theory talks about. You know, and, and 5-MeO-DMT, for instance, what if that's actually, because in, you know, one idea is that there would be a, a loom, like a, like, a, like a dimension of super strings that are weaving like all of these different dimensions into existence simultaneously. That's sort of in itself outside of what we understand as space and time. So what if the 5-MeO-DMT experience actually gives you that direct access to that kind of loom of vibratory superstrings that are outside of space-time, you know, something like that. Let me just say, another way of looking at this is that uh, Rick Straussman, the DNT researcher at the University of New Mexico, suggested that um, this, uh, the realities and the entities that we're experiencing in these uh, hyperspace realms on DNT uh, could be uh, black matter, or sorry, dark matter or dark energy, and that if we could eventually develop uh, some type of camera system or video system to be able to photograph uh, dark matter or dark energy, we might be able to verify the types of uh, visions and experiences that people are having. Yeah, but they have, just quickly, they already, they already have technologies, I believe they're developing, where they can create mental imagery from people's dreams. Yeah, yeah. So why not apply that to these psychedelic visions? That would be an incredible, you know, and eventually with virtual reality, you'd be able to have like complete experiences of them. Yeah, and that's kind of where I wanted to go next uh, into the technological, you know, framework and, and or integration. Um, one of the great footnotes of psychedelic culture is, and I, I didn't write it down, but what's um, the, uh, the full title of Terence's, uh, of uh, the Archaic Revival, Revival, DMT and, and Virtual Reality, it's in the title, and that was, what, 1991, right? So, it's no accident that you know some of the early virtual reality pioneers and cyberspace pioneers, and you know Jaron Lanier, and of course Tim and Barlow, and you know all our old friends were psychedelic holdouts. So, what's happening there, and where 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 are some 
potential fusions that we can kind of see these two worlds now that we see the maturity of virtual reality kind of taking place. What's James? Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not a great fan of virtual reality, to be honest. I, I think a lot of the transhumanism and stuff that's coming is not a world that I like the look of. In many ways, I think we're going to be one of the last generations of human beings that actually live in this world and not in a weird, half real, half digital world that's going to have to be created because we're going to just leave such trash wreck of this world, we're not going to want to be in it. So I find a lot of the enthusiasm about those things to be a little um, frightening, I think, because I think it draws the attention away. I mean, I'm a little bit, I don't know what I think about the medicalization of psychedelics. Because I think the medicalization of psychedelics is, is our current culture bringing the psychedelic perspective into a box that it can handle psychedelics in. I, I'm much more interested in our culture taking on a psychedelic perspective, because I think the psychedelic perspective is the perspective we need to learn to live in harmony with and, our environment. And how do we do that? That's the burning question at this, this moment in time, isn't it? I mean, I think psychedelics have reappeared on our cultural radar because they are at least giving us an option and giving us another view of another way that things can be. Because virtual reality is just the ultimate example of really creating our own reality with our mind, you know, with our own technology and our own ingenuity. And there's a certain, and to a certain sense, we create our reality with what we believe and the systems we make and the things that we pursue. So I think, you know, as a culture, we need to shift to a very different way of integrating. And, and psychedelics are the most likely tool to help us at this very, very, very late stage of the game. I mean, I, I kind of think it's too late, to be honest. Uh, yeah, well, it's too late. <laughs> First thing I'd like to say is, uh, David, we've known each other for a while. I'll give you 10 bucks if I can have a sip of your water. <laughs> you got it. If someone could bring them. Ben, a cup of water, that would be amazing. And bring 10 bucks. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, uh, Any of that, you know, return to psychedelic consciousness or mysticism, technology, and pick a thread. Man, I love all of it. Um, so uh, I think the things that, um, you know, being a documentary maker, uh, I'm mainly reporting on things that I hear from other people that are deeper in the field than myself. Um, having interviewed Roland Griffiths, he was talking about uh, possibly using laser beams to, um, uh, to actually enact certain regions of the brain that communicate amongst one another to, uh, to then kind of like change history or, or like bring about psychedelic light states. Um, there's obviously there's many of endogenous ways of, of bringing on psychedelic light states through movement, through breath. Um, have any of you heard of uh, extended state DMT? Raise your hand if you have. Okay, not enough to let it go. Um, basically, uh, extended state DMT or DMTX would just be the, uh, the intravenous continuous infusion of dimethyltryptamine, um, 
And so the, the whole idea behind that, uh, a friend of mine back in Boulder, Colorado, Dan McQueen from Medicinal Mindfulness, um, who's, uh, was in um, Shane Moss's documentary, I believe, um, is basically trying to push this forward as far as like, what are these other worlds that you can access? Are they really, Andrew Gallimore, who co-authored uh, with Rick Strassman the, the paper, was saying the one thing about DMT uh, that he believes is that it seems to be a little bit more of a structured reality that it brings you into than the distortion of the one that we're in. So uh, what does that mean? How do we actually catch our bearings in that state, uh, stay longer, extract useful information? Uh, could we, you know, if these are more intelligent entities separate from ourselves or even parts of our chambers of our own intelligence, uh, accessing them for longer, being able to catch our bearings and accessing them, um, could we solve major global crises within shorter amounts of time? So. That, I mean, none of this uh, do I really know enough about to say I support or uh, or I'm against. But as far as like the future, where could it go? Uh, I believe that technology seems to also be the one thing that seems to keep budging its way into uh, the future of this. Um, so the way that I take a look at it is, I'm not really sure what the plant kingdom is. You know, is is that a form of its own technology? Uh, in and of itself an intelligent form. I'm also very curious uh, when I'm looking at things like AI, uh, you know, the observer effect, you know, observing uh, a wave and collapsing it into a particle. At what point or if ever would there be the ability for uh, AI to be able to observe something and then change its, uh, change its state? Uh, these are all things that I find to be the topics that I keep hearing about the more that I interview people. Um, a lot of it has to do with maybe the next five, 10 years, where are we at now, what's gonna be legally. Look 50, maybe 100 years down the line, are we talking, you know, when, when you were mentioning in that uh, opening quote about human potential, uh, where could we be if we actually had a really intelligent, wise way forward for the next 15, 20, 50, 100 years with these plants? Where can this technology actually take us? Um, I've, if, you've, if you know Dean Radin, his book, Real Magic, there's uh, there's some weird shit going on in this world. I mean, they're, they're, like, and just the fact that we observe it, and why why are we observing it? Well, you know, why do we observe it the way that we do? Um, thank you, Rebecca. <laughs> um, so these are these are all the questions that I feel like need to be talked about a little bit more because I, I do kind of agree with Jane, uh, James. I don't really know if I like the, the direction that we're currently taking technology, but technology is just a tool. Could it be, you know, is it co-opted, is it hijacked? Probably. Um, does it have to be that way in the future? It doesn't have to be anything. So uh, where are we going to take it? Where are the people in this room going to take it? How can we start orchestrating more good? Because uh, that seems to be the thing. That really makes me think about the cognitive liberty discussion and James with you, and I agree very much with what you said about the, the medical box that is being so conveniently constructed around psychedelics. I mean, of course, I love what's happening. The research is amazing. But that, like, you know, every time I hear the MDMA discussion these days, it's like FDA, FDA, MDA, MDMA, FDA. And that's just like, wait, what? How, how did this happen? There's a section in Michael Pollan's new book, it's quite fascinating, where he says we're rolling Griffith, 
and those, they go to the, the FDA proposing their trials for psilocybin and the, the FDA says they had a very limited scope they were trying to get done. Uh, I think it was for end of life type patients. And the FDA actually said, well, we've heard these things can be useful for depression, so why don't you widen the scope of your investigation? Which is totally unheard of. So Griffith and these guys went outside feeling like they're just the goose that had got the golden egg. But if you look at it the other way around, why is the US government telling these guys to start looking at using the psychedelics in these ways? Because A, they see there's a massive problem that's brewing that, you know, is depression a disease or is depression in the natural result of intelligent people seeing the human condition and the situation we're in? I mean, we've got to be a little bit insane to survive. I call it extinction denial in my first book. <laughs> so I think depression is a totally, is a symptom of where we are at. So the idea of using LSD as a band-aid to make this system more bearable is not the direction I want to see psychedelics being used, personally. It's definitely, it's, it is very thought-provoking and we could spend a whole panel talking about that for sure. Um, but around the sensibility of, so speaking very pragmatically, just around the sensibility of extracting psychedelics a little bit anyway from the medical box that they are falling into and returning them back into the cognitive liberty fueled mystical am ambitions and you know that's really the roots of all psychedelic work i mean it started with shamans in our tribes and as shane moss said in his great new documentary like the guy who could take the most psychedelics and talk about it they made him the leader you know, that was the leader of the tribe. Like, that was really cool. You know, that's the way it was. Um, and that's what an amazing thought. And we, we, we've kind of lost that. So, but how... That's definitely not Donald Trump. It's <laughs> definitely not Donald Trump, right. Yeah, so how do we sensibly like, reintegrate the cognitive liberty discussion? Because I'm, I'm not hearing much talk about policy yeah, I think the legalization of cannabis is, is is inevitably leading in that direction. You're seeing this magic mushrooms right. on the ballot in Oregon, and there's definitely people are starting to talk about it more. But this is what I've been saying for a while, that Roland Griffith's experiment, uh, what's going on in John Hopkins, with the recreation of the Marsh Chapel and the fact that they are scientifically proving that you can have a mystical experience on psychedelics, that's a legal basis to go to the Supreme Court and say, hey, this is a basic human right that human beings should be able to use yeah. substances that we've used for thousands of years. And I think that should be more central to the conversation. And, and I also, I, I, and I, it's not so much from a comic relief, like the, the science of creativity and the science of pleasure, like, you know, uh, look at love, love me do, than Sergeant Peppers, like that is, there you go. You know, if, if, if psychedelics can do anything, the, the way it can spark and fuel our imagination and, and turn, you know, creative thinking into something completely 
completely different. But I think the focus on the science and the medical model was necessary to, I mean, it was the only scene that was going to work to kind of like get it back into the culture and, and propagate it in a way. And, you know, once that, you know, has achieved significant milestones, then it will be very natural to talk about all the other possibilities. You know, and, and then I think we'll also have to start talking about uh, something that doesn't now get talked about very much, which is kind of the dark side of psychedelics and how they're not always positive and, and liberatory. They can actually cause people's negative character traits to become exacerbated. I, I did want to actually, I was going to actually end the panel with that, but since you took us here organically, I wanted to go down the line and ask everyone, with that being the case, and I agree, what is, if you have a model for how psychedelics can best be used within the general public? Is it like, you know, the driver's license model? Is it sort of the psychiatric prescription model? Is it full legalization? What, it's what is a problem. It? There isn't a model that applies to everybody from various models that apply to different groups or different people in different situations mm -hmm. and different. So I don't think you can really have a blanket approach. I, I think that they're incredibly powerful tools that need to be uh, used with great respect and that people shouldn't use them without some sort of education. Um, I think Tim Leary's idea that people should have a, something like a, not a driver's license, but a pilot's license, something a little more sophisticated um, than a driver's license. But I think that would actually be a good way of going about doing it. Uh, I think everyone should have the opportunity and the right to experiment with psychedelics. I don't think we need to have them prescribed by a doctor. But at the same time, I think that they're extremely powerful and need to be respected, and that uh, people need to show that they're educated enough to use them properly. Yeah, uh, they're very, very powerful. This is true. Um, they're also uh, the oldest known medicine. Um, and so we have many, many, many generations of examples of how to use them responsibly. The difference is, is that we don't live in that world anymore. Um, there's, I always look at uh, the economic framework as, in a sense, almost like a matrix that we, it's like a language, it's a way that we speak now, it's a way we interact with one another. Um, it's, it's become so embedded into the fabric of who and what we are uh, that I think that needs to be addressed because there's also, we come from however many years of propaganda now, so there's a large portion of the population that has a specific mindset. And so, um, you know, I, I always like the idea of what is communication? What, you know, how do we bridge a gap? And that comes by understanding the, the side that there may be some resistance from and, and trying to find that middle ground rather than retreating to our extreme and, uh, and really just holding our position so firm. So it's very, I, I look at it as a multi-dynamic system. You know, we, we see things inside this little system, but it's also playing upon larger systems and larger systems are playing upon what we're living with. So the things that we think are right and just and moral, um, a lot of the times when we, when we break apart our worldview, it fits into a different system and then the way you communicate and relate and feedback with that system is far different. So relating it back to the point is, um, you know, uh, as far as like the shadow side of psychedelics and like, you know, how do we address this shadow? I, th I think we address it the same way we always have with proper communication, but also recognizing that we're living in a world that's far different than our ancestors that had this 
you know, in isolated tribes and communities, a little bit of traffic back and forth, but uh, it's, a, it's a far different world. So the idea is, is how do we integrate the new now with the thing that's always been there? Um, and you know, th this is a question that, it's a topic that needs to keep coming up more and more uh, because I don't think there is any one answer, like, like James has said, because uh, there's no one kind of person. And we have a system that treats everybody like one kind of person. It's blind to justice. So uh, with that respect, new novel ways of thinking in how to approach this, preferably you know, through meditation, psychedelics, um, ways to just break ourselves out of our default mode. Uh, this might be the way there. So if we have to start with driver's pilot's licenses and stuff like that, if that's the way it starts, great. But as long as some kind of progress is being made and the topic stays on the table. Yeah, that's but I think there's a deeper issue in a way that, like, you know, psychedelics and shamanism are ultimately about, you know, personal authority, you know, and, and kind of sovereignty in a way. Self-actualization. And, and, you know, and we do say, I mean, I always look at things, I wrote a book, uh, 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl, that was looking at these ideas from indigenous cultures, that there is kind of a shift happening between like worlds or dimensions or some huge, bigger prophetic process that's actually happening. And for me, what we see now with kind of like the um, com complete collapse of like kind of like the authority structure of our systems, you know, like who can believe in the government? I mean, the government's going to issue licenses for psychedelics. This government, right. you know, that's right. putting kids into you know detention centers and <laughs> shooting them up with psychotropic drugs. Right. Like I, I'm not going to really think that that's really very valuable. You know, but maybe this is all some part of a, of a process where this movement towards cognitive liberty, self-actualization, sovereignty, um, you know, is, is part of a process that leads to an overturning or transmutation of this present system, which we also know can't continue because it's destroying the physical environment we depend on. Well, we're at and Daniel's new book, our latest book, How Soon Is Now, a real deal, deals with a, a pretty deep dive in, into this topic. It's really excellent if you haven't read it. But where I kind of get hung up on this, right, is that in the 60s, uh, you know, in what, say in 1963, how many people had done psychedelics in America? Hardly anyone, right? So by the end of the 60s, by 1970, millions of people had tripped. And fast forward 50 years later, I mean, I don't know what the number is, but probably tens of millions of people have taken some form of psychotropic medicine. It's probably, yeah. it's probably in the 100 million now if you add MDA to the Right. But yet, here we are. Donald Trump got elected president. And yeah, I don't want that government giving me a driver's license, you know, too. I, I get it. I get your point is, is, is very valid. But extracting the tactical plan of action, as you refer to it, Daniel, is um, you tell, me, tell me a little bit more about that, because I'm still, that's where I get hung up, because I did. I was, of course, one of those people who was, and still is naive enough to think that, hey, if more people turned on in an intelligent, it's a multi-generational process, right? I mean, I don't think it was just that the government made psychedelics illegal. I think it was also that the, you know, people weren't ready. There were no elders. I mean, you know, your father, when he started taking psychedelics in 1960, you know, or something, he was 40 years old, yeah. and you know, somebody who had a long history with alcohol 
and three years later, he was like the guru of psychedelics, you know, and, and that was because there was no, like now there we can see no that else. it's impossible, because yeah. we have so many people have 20 years, 30 years of history with them. So, um, you know, even in the 70s, like John Lennon talked about how when he, you know, he did so much LSD that he destroyed his ego, and it took him years to reassemble himself. Yeah. You know, so we had to go through these, these stages of kind of uh, casualties. And, you know, and it, and it still happens. You know, we're still learning. We're, we're maturing as a society. It's not happening in, in uh, you know, the staff, you know, the mainstream media doesn't maybe fathom that. Although the media is now more receptive to the discoveries on, on the scientific side of psychedelics. But there's another process, which is an evolutionary process, maybe, that um, is, is a little harder to fathom. And we'd like it to happen quicker, but it ha it's just going to happen as it happens. Well, I do think the, the Burning Man model is one always it's worth looking at you know the expansion of well I, I was going to say what about the question is donald trump president because psychedelics took a lot of people out of the political process <laughs> fair enough that's true you know, I, I see what that's going on is the smart people don't want you know they just are so disgusted well, nobody wants that job well, you know, if there was a way we could we could make psychedelics, if psychedelics could make people go out and vote, that'd be really helpful. <laughs> you know, I would just like to mention, though, that um, there's scientific evidence that psychedelics, particularly LSD and ayahuasca and magic mushrooms, are known to increase so, uh, ecological awareness to make people more environmentally aware. So and when people get involved in environmental um, activities, they start recycling. There's the, scientific evidence be, for this. I'm not sure how it would affect voting so much right now, but I think the long-term, you know, the long-term process of this is going to eventually make people more ecologically aware. I think it's the planet trying to heal itself right now. I think it's no accident that just 20 years ago, there was no ayahuasca for churches, and now they're in every major city. They're everywhere. It's proliferating. Magic mushrooms are everywhere. It's like a mycelium network growing all over the planet. I think the planet is trying to heal itself right now, desperately through us, is trying to heal itself, and I think it's like it are playing a key role in that. I think that's why psychedelic research is so primarily important because it increases ecological awareness. Yeah. No, that, that is an extremely, extremely, I mean, perhaps arguably the most important pressing issue of our time, right? I mean, and increasingly so as time. With every passing day, right? Exponentially. I know, Ben, you a lot of your film work. <laughs> a lot of your film work. I mean, talk more about the, the environmental. Uh, yeah, actually. So in uh, in the show Psychedelica, uh, which uh, David J. Brown is in, um, also Dennis McKenna, Shane Moss, Dr. Joe Tafur, and even Tom Hatzis that was here. Um, so in that show, uh, I speak a lot about the, the ecological impact um, because of you know people like uh, David who mentioned exactly what he was mentioning here. Um, I always found it fascinating that why why does this class of plants um, seem to mimic a, a neurotransmitter that puts us into a specific state, you know? And why does why does the outcome seem to be something that? Uh, 
most of the, most of the time, if uh, looking at it anthropologically, causes for community bonding, a little bit more understanding of the interconnectivity of the world that we're in. Um, and just a few points that I even made in the show was, um, if you just look at our common practices, call it ignorance or call it what you will, but just like the monoculture and the tilling and the severing of all of the mycelial connections and things uh, that we have going on under the ground, that's just one aspect of, um, of our disconnection. You look at cities and we're in the business of pushing, pushing nature out, except for domesticated nature. We bring it in under our terms. Um, so I think, um, this could just, it could just be waking us up to a larger process that, that seems to be happening as a, a great forgetting uh, that, you know, w we may even be inverted plants, an offshoot of the microbial kingdom, you know, th there's very many questions that, you know, that we could legitimately be asking in this way. And so, um, and so for me, you know, whether, whether psychedelics are causing us to remember or they're, they're literally just allowing for our capacity to bring on new ideas that our culture hasn't really been asking for, for quite some time, uh, but has been a part of our, um, you know, at least our ancestry for quite some time. Yeah, it's hard-coded in there somewhere. It is. So, um, so to me, I, always, I, I just like posing the questions. As a documentary maker, I like, uh, you know, like hearing from all the experts and posing the questions. It's like, why would there be a class of plants like this, and I think all plant life is freaking incredible. Uh, Do you think it extends to uh, like the chemical compounds as well, LSD and MDMA? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, so uh, coming from uh, ergot, obviously, it goes through a process. Uh, but yeah, the, the chemical compounds. You know, like going deep into it, I personally, I like the idea of just using plants uh, in their raw form, but um, there's, there's, it's also, that says a lot about me. Uh, I know I have a lot of friends who are extremely excited about the technological advancements and extremely excited about, um, you know, these chemical compounds, you know, just all of it, just being completely synthesized and being able to use it in that way. And uh, I disagree. But then again, you know, this is the way that uh, people's minds are kind of going. And these are people that are actually like lifelong people that are into plant medicines and they really enjoy it, but I'm it's taking them. them into new directions. Well, the fact is that synthetic psychedelic, I mean, there's never been a drug like LSD that a competent chemist could make millions of hits of in an afternoon. And it was perfectly packaged <laughs> and perfectly presented in a way that was exactly right for the time. So whatever you think about plant teachers, the synthetics brought us back to them. And as Sasha says, you know, am I not part of nature too? Which I think is what <laughs> Alexander Humboldt's line was as well. Um, LSD gets a bad rap as being a synthetic, but there are LSAs in nature and morning glory seeds that are very, very, very close to LSD. It was just at the time we didn't have the technology to isolate them. So we found that we found the simple drugs first, like DMT. I think we synthesized DMT before it was found in plants, didn't we? Well, I like to think, you know, and we're, I want to get into this as our closing question before we take uh, questions from the audience, but I like to think everything is an extension of God and of the divine, even, you know. If God is instilling us the ability to create chemical compounds, then it is a manifestation of the divine as well. So I don't really separate separate them myself. Yeah, yeah I just like I just like to add something. Um, you know, Ben was saying, isn't it isn't it such a mystery? You know, why do these plants exist that fit into our synapses just so perfectly, like lock and key, and have these effects of increasing ecological awareness and doing these things? You know, even more interesting. Um, 
in addition to that is that uh, I learned from Paul Stamets that uh, magic mushrooms, psilocybin mushrooms, tend to grow in areas where there are human disturbances and other construction sites where they plow through roads, where they knock down trees, things like that. It's almost like it's a response from nature. It's almost like a hormonal response in the greater body of the planet that's releasing these things. The psilocybin mushrooms grow in areas where there is ecological destruction. Can that just be a coincidence that they make people more ecologically aware? <laughs> So, so I think there's some kind of intelligence uh, to nature and there's some kind of agenda to what they're doing and that uh, we're not as much in control as we think we are. Um, I love when uh, Dennis McKenna um, had an ayahuasca experience. Uh, apparently the ayahuasca spirit spoke to him and said, uh, you monkeys only think you're running the show. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, but I mean, I, I sort of also, I keep, when you talk about the ecological value of psychedelics, which of course I agree with, uh, particularly ayahuasca, at the same time, sort of as what James was saying about the political system, it feels like we're getting an invitation from these compounds to commit on some deeper level to doing some type of restoration work for the planet. It's not clear that we're actually making that commitment or accepting that invitation, you know, at this point. Um, you know, I, 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 I had more hopes. When my first book, Breaking Open the Head, came out, you know, just maybe as your father thought when he discovered LSD, it was like, wow, this is going to change the consciousness of the planet in a week. I was like, wow, ayahuasca is, you know, if everybody gets a hold of this, it's going to bring about these deep structural changes. And now it's 17 years later, and it's, you know, it's, it's 15 years later. It's, it, there are changes happening. I see many people changing, like cap, you know, wealthy capitalists who do the medicine, who then change how they invest their wealth and so on. But at the same time, we have you know Scott Pruitt and kind of generally almost like a dissociative relationship to our environment. You know. Well, you know, Kurt, Kurt Vonnegut in his final book tour, you know, he was, he was going around the country. It was supposed to be I mean, his last book. He was talking about the the condition of the human species and how he thought it was just a virus. We are a virus by the very definition. Well, that's just negative and dumb. It's very negative, yeah. but, but it's an interesting, I mean, just... I, I, who cares anyway, if that's the case? <laughs> it's still interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, so we are going to take, um, you know, 10 to 15 minutes of some questions from... Or the bad people. Or the bad, the bad people, too. Yeah. Especially the bad people, actually. So, uh, yeah, I think we're performing a cue over here. Yeah. Uh, I'm a local optimist and global pessimist, and with uh, our, well, the mindset is, is becoming more open. Our government is or very military based, and while it's a seemingly obvious solution for PTSD, uh, I feel like it would hurt getting the numbers in the military and people people being obedient. So how do you change a government that's military-based to have psychedelics when it's going to hurt the military and when we're an oligarchy run by corporations, so that also hurts corporations? And, and so I don't, I'm not trying to derail your question, but did everybody just hear about this latest uh, utterance to come out of the orange clown's mouth about the space army? Space he force. Wants, the space force? He wants to create a six space force. A six arm of the military? Creating, yeah. I mean, out in space? I mean, Jeff Star. Clone Wars is coming next. Clone Wars is coming next. Hey, Ray, Ray wanted, Ray wanted Star Wars. Star Wars, right. He reminds me of Ray. I mean, that, that's a very big question, and I think that's, it's like, 
you know, there's so many strands interwoven, right? Like a lot of the early research in LSD in the US was CIA research that led to Ken Kesey taking it. And now we're seeing the MDMA research on, on veterans, you know, and, and like even Mercer, like the right-wingers are supporting that research with big grants and so on. So yes, it, it, you know, everything you're saying is true and, and hopefully there's like a, a seam that, that, that leads to something else. I think I'm optimistic of that. I'll throw one thing on top of that, just kind of piggybacking off of uh, what you were saying, Daniel, is, uh, you know, 15 years has passed and how much change we've seen. Uh, I know some people that have been taking uh, the medicine for at least 10 years, uh, probably a little more. They're still, in, they're still dealing with their own individual um, vices and stuff like that. So if, if it translates, I'm not saying that, you know, I know exactly how it works on a, on a global or a cultural or a national scale, but, um, you know, if, if we're dealing with national vices, uh, you know, such as being in a military mindset, um, who knows, it could take longer or it could take more or just a different approach. But, um, but you know, I, I still know people that have for at least 10, 12 years still working on cigarette addictions or alcohol addictions. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, it may be in the works, who you knows, it's, it's just something I have to There's an incredible irony, though, that I'd like to point out that uh, one of the main reasons that psychedelics and LSD was made illegal back in the 60s was because people who did LSD didn't want to go fight wars. That was, and now, and now it's being legalized <laughs> because it's going to treat veterans that come back from from war. So, there's an incredible kind of full circle of irony in there. And just if you're asking a question, um, if you could, if you want to address it to somebody specifically or just for the general panel, but if you have it specifically just for someone's sake. The, the industrial military complex, which these days it is, we've actually it's no longer a military industrial complex, it's now an industrial military complex. <laughs> and they have no intention of giving up the reins. No amount of psychedelics is going to shift our cultural direction. I, I, think, I think psychedelics are here to band groups of us together, to learn to live together again and to prepare for a very uncertain future. Um, first, I just want to echo the, the comment earlier of bringing a case to the Supreme Court to legalize psychedelics on the grounds of religious freedom. I think that's a fantastic idea that lawyers should be working on. Well, I mean, to a certain extent, the, the, the ruling on the ayahuasca churches is in that direction. So there's already been some some movement, but yeah, we don't, I would like to see a national, like I think the Council of Spiritual Practices, Bob Jesse's organization, is definitely doing good, good work. And I think within a few years, we'll see more of a push towards this idea of the legalization of certain psychedelics and the natural ones first. There's really no basis for it. They're not addictive, they're not toxic. There's, there's not a large record of abuse. And the, the question I would like to ask is, we discuss so much about ceremony, spirituality, mystical experience. How can we avoid the dangers and pitfalls associated with religions and cults as this community continues to evolve? Well, I, I'm a huge fan of what I call the neutral container. I honestly think it's way more interesting to let people find what they find in the experience than creating a you know, a, a temple kind of, there's a lot of cultism going on these days, and I, I feel like we're almost falling back into the sort of new age 
The same thing that did a lot of damage in the 60s is threatening to do a lot of damage again. We, we may look back on the mid-90s to early 2000s, ironically, as being a golden age of psychonauts. And they had the research chemical companies and there was a very small but very serious population. Did you just say that in the last couple of I honestly didn't think about that a lot. I think it's funny the way that, you know, we've got this mainstreaming of psychedelic culture going on and it's getting diluted and there's a lot of new age and sort of, you know, there's no, there's no need to call something a temple or give it all the traffic. Another perspective would be that everything is a cult. Like, you know, capitalism is a cult. Like, every, every culture is a cult. You know, people experiment with new social formations, and you call them cults, you call them cultures or societies, you know. So, in a way, like, I, you, a lot of people love that Wild Wild Country uh, documentary on Netflix about the Osho commune. You know, one of the things I would have to say is those people were having an amazing time, you know, yeah. like, in living in bliss, and it looked fucking awesome, you know, for a long time, <laughs> until the whole thing went insane. You know, so that was also because of pressures from the outside. So like, you know, so, you know, so yes, we don't we don't want gurus and Jonestowns and stuff like that. But you know, having you know, recognizing that that culture should always be an experiment, and new formations are super interesting, and new religions are super interesting. Like, why the hell not? That's you know, why. Why be so restrictive? That's why I like the Burning Man model because we all belong to, to something. And creating a container that allows you to belong. Burning Man's an interesting example too, because I feel it's kind of gone more new age as the years have gone by. It had a real hanger anarchistic. The worst problem for me is that it's crystallized into something like, like that's the only thing Terrence McKenna talked about, how cultures are enemy, because, you know, when something settles into a culture, it becomes kind of like yeah. anti creativity in a way. So now everybody knows how to be at Burning Man, what to wear, which DJs to listen to, yeah. and it's done. <laughs> The, the wonderful thing about, uh, about psychedelics and what I think would really help to uh, put a break on them becoming uh, involved in a kind of dogmatic uh, religion or cult is that they, by their very nature, the experience transcends culture. So I think by having these authentic spiritual experiences, I think, is a way of helping to keep culture in check. I don't agree because I, I, like, for instance, I know like full on like ayahuasca cults in South America and have like evil leaders and so on. I mean, you know, you, know, I mean, you can have psychedelics lead to crazy circumstances with weird cults and, and leaders. So I said setting apparently does But I, I don't think anything becoming successful is necessarily makes it a bad thing. No, things like you know Burning Man and the direction that that took, and uh, a lot of a lot of groups once they congeal and get enough um, identity of themselves, at least from my perspective, it always seems like they develop some sort of an immune system and, and attacks anything that seems to want to derail what it is in its existence and its trajectory. Um, so. <clears throat> You know, there's always going to be an evolution of things. Uh, Burning Man was never going to stay what it was. It was always going to turn into something more and more people were going to show up. And those people were going to be something that the old cats were like, the fuck are they doing? You know, it's so like, funny that we keep falling back on this stuff. You know, you just say something more. Did that answer your question? Thank you. On the right. Hi. Thanks for being up here. This isn't uh, an insult to the five of you, but I think that you guys might have something thoughtful to say about it. Uh, as this you know, psychedelic renaissance is uh, occurring, what's it going to take for it to include communities of color 
George Clinton supposedly says he did acid every day for four years. There's also a really good book called Sisters of the Extreme. Um, I'm very sorry I'm forgetting the author's name, uh, but um, but that's also showing the uh, you know women in history, uh, people like Maya Angelou and uh, quite a few others, and their experiences with uh, psychotropics and psychedelics. So uh, check that one. I think of the chance. It's uh, Sisters of the Extreme. Yeah, you know, I, I've been criticized by I've done uh, six books of interviews, and mostly, uh, many of the people I've interviewed are men, and I've been criticized a lot about it. That's why my, my new book is going to be Women of Visionary Art, entirely interviews with just women, awesome. women artists. <laughs> Over here. So I... So I actually had a similar question. Um, so I find a lot of similarities in the philosophy of intersectionality and black feminism And so I was wondering if there's any research or conversations being had about how psychedelics can unite with social justice issues and racial trauma. Oh, are you familiar with Nessie Davenport's work? Yeah, there's a woman from Missy Davenport who did a really interesting thing on like she called it clearing of consciousness. And she was comparing psychedelics to a home to a homosexual perspective and this clearing of consciousness. I think that might be something you'd be interested in. She's she's doing some interesting work in that area. This N E S E Davenport. Your question makes me think we should really give an ayahuasca session to uh, James uh, Yeah. Oh, really? oh. Uh, it's a great question. 
and I would love to know more myself. Um, uh, do you have any thinkers or anybody that you know of that's been exploring that field, that area? I don't know anyone that has linked intersectionality. What do you see as the link? What do you see as the link? How would you, how would you make the link? Um, well, intersectionality I guess that's one reason why people tend to think that, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's harder for people who are in the Kind of oppressed circumstances to do psychedelics because they often make you so incredibly sensitized to, 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 to that, you know, the conditions of oppression. Yeah, for me, um, psychedelics kind of introduced me to my relationship with blackness, and so it's something that has been really profound in my life, and I would like to share with people. So I just I'd love to see more. I'd love to see more work and more fun of it, and love to read something that you wrote or you know, say about it. Same In the last days, we've been hearing a lot about integration. It's been a common theme. It's been, I think, a common theme, and almost everybody's talking panel. And I'm just wondering, what conversation are we having to make sure we're not integrating with the sick society? How are we? What, what are we doing? What are we talking about? to avoid integrating with the problem itself. <laughs> I think James actually uh, mentioned a little bit of that earlier, is like uh, with depression, you know, like is it a disease or is it, uh, um, is it a reaction to a system that seems to be dysfunctional? And, uh, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say I have the best answer to that as far as, um, you know, like being able to eloquate it right now, but I think uh, through experiencing um, in your in your own way uh, in a container that you feel safe with, um, you know whether you want to call it intuition or something something along those lines. I feel like there's some point with enough self observation where you know whether something's off kilter or not. And even if even if you are still compelled in that direction, there's there's a lesson maybe to, to come from it. Um, but I see where your question is coming from, at least I feel I do, uh, and I feel that there's, there's definitely a way that these plants can be used to simply, uh, to simply just give ourselves a way through the mire without doing something for it or with it uh, to better it. Um, so I would say, uh, again, I'm not advocating, I actually never advocate for people to try the plants. I just know that a lot of people are doing it, and, um, and I feel like the, the best way of doing that is to integrate it better with every other modality that we have to observe who we are. I think we inside are the best uh, barometer for exactly what we are uh, integrating with, whether it be a family system or a societal system, we're probably the best barometer for that. Uh, the research, the intellectual side of it and everything like that, that can inform and help it. Um, but I, I still think it's all leading us back into, you know, what are we, what is this phenomenon, is it all one continuous thing, 
um, and how can we move forward while orchestrating the most good? Yeah, I think it's a great question, and I think it's a big problem. I mean, now in a way, like uh, certain facets of the culture, even of the very elite culture, have kind of assimilated psychedelic experience. I mean, there's now a circuit of people going to these global festivals, you know, Burning Man, Ibiza, you know, wherever, uh, and uh, Tulum, and so on. There's like a circuit. And it's become its own kind of hedonistic joyride. Uh, so, so you know, with this kind of veneer or overlay of spirituality, I think it's a big problem. So I don't know what the answer is. But the ego is very good at assimilating anything, and uh, psychedelics are another thing. They have, they also really have, a, you know, initially a very profound impact on people. They often, you know, make people better in many respects. But then the ego ultimately can figure out how to assimilate. It is and a lot of people, you know, just want to kind of tune out and numb out, like, you know, they're, they're grateful dead, as much of a deadhead as I am, and that was my first original tribe, I mean, you really saw it becoming such a huge problem towards the end, as people just wanted just to check out and kind of do nothing. But I, I think what would be interesting would be if you had, because now there are these new modalities of doing them for healthy people, like, you know, within sound meditations, assisted with uh, psychoactives or ayahuasca ceremonies, if the end of that process was actually teaching around the structural injustices in society and the work that needs to be done to address them and the ecological catastrophe that we have to address for the sake of our children, and at the moment I don't see that happening, it's become more of its own thing as a kind of adjunct to this new age culture which is so based on the self and self-healing, it becomes another kind of uh, you know, annoying thing that our culture is so good at producing as a kind of distraction mechanism. Uh, I think it's just one thing why psychedelics really bring the force to you. We live in two worlds, one that we can influence, one that we can't. And, and you know, to me, psychedelic use is a very personal thing. And, and it is to make your life the best life you can make it, living in this mad system that we're in. That's okay. You know, I think there's something to be said, though, for, for making, worrying about your own life. You know, your own and, and making your own, what controlling what you can, and then the rest of the world gets a little bit better because your world is a little bit better. So, we have time for one more question. One more question. Just one more. Yeah. Question. Uh, is it question. question? Is this a question? <laughs> Come on, man. Is this a question? This is for Daniel. <laughs> Are you familiar with the Hugh Everett videos? Uh, I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, the string theory that you uh, talked about is very complicated, but Hugh Everett proposed you know, the parallel universes that exist, and I think that's a very nice model of the exploration with DMT. You enter alternate realities, hyperdimensional spaces, and all of that. Now, with reference to people having the same visions, this is common. The mutual Peyote people, they have similar visions among the Shuar of Ecuador, they also have similar dreams. I asked my question at the beginning, and I think that's the answer. So I think, I think the, the question is, what do you think of the concept of multiple things? One thing you were saying about the, the landscapes being similar is I do a lot of work with Alex Gray. And before I ever knew Alex, I had a couple of experiences where I saw things that were very, very similar to his art. 
like one time at school. And, so. and I thought that was very strange. I was like, because he's not my favourite. So Gallic artist, he's one I like, he's certainly not my favourite. And I thought, why well, all the different artists, you know, that I had to see Gallic's work. And when I've been with him, and I'm, so many people come up to him and they make the same comment, oh, I saw this thing and it was exactly like your art. And Alex compares himself to the um, 19th century landscape painters who would come out west and would paint like El Cap and the Tetons and things like this, and they would take the paintings back to the east coast, and no one would believe them that these incredible landscapes existed from the 18th century maybe. So he says he very much is, he paints true vistas that other people can see. And I think that's one of the really most fascinating things about psychedelic culture and Stan Ross' work, you know, that, that when you can actually, when we can get enough information, we can get enough feedback from people who start treating tr 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 local seriously, we can categorise these things. And, and, you know, when I wrote Trip to Green Palace, I didn't know anybody would, would resonate with the view that I had on that at all. It was just my view. And it's been really, um, rewarding over the years how many people have resonated with that experience. So I think that's what makes it so interesting is that we all had radically different experiences that made it a little, a little less interesting. Thank you. Can just jump in and say like, that, uh, yeah, there's different interpretive frameworks, you know, the multi-world, multi-dimensions, or the aboriginals talk about the dreamtime ancestors who just dream our world into reality, you know, or the, you know, now we have the transhumanist perspective that maybe this, what we're experiencing is, is a somehow like a matrix, and, and, you know, behind it is a, is a you know, virtual reality projector or something. They might all be true in, in some fashion. But one thing that's so interesting about like a profound psychedelic experience with LSD or the first time you do it or the second time or the tenth time is that sense you have of the inherent perfection of everything just as it is, uh, which is kind of extraordinary. I'm fairly uh, certain that all of these guys will talk to you if you have any more questions after the panel. Um, so let's give them a big round of applause. That's Stuart, David J. Brown, Dan Pinsbeck, Dan Borak, and Zach Leary. And uh, this is an episode of the MAPS podcast, so if you want to listen to it, we'll put it up next week. Let me hear you. Thanks, guys.